2: Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com/pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world.
2: On today's show, author Mark Oshiro discusses his debut novel, Anger is a Gift. Then PW News Director Rachel Deal previews the New York Rights Fair.
0: But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publisher's Weekly Bestseller list, powered by NPD Bookscan.
2: So on the hardcover fiction list, we have a new number three that's our highest debut. It's The High Tide Club by Mary Kay Andrews, certainly hitting the high tide of the list. Sold about 13,700 copies out of the gate, according wow. to NPD Bookscan. And uh, we don't have a review of this. Um, Andrews is the author of The Weekenders, and this is being billed as a new delightful new novel about new love, old secrets, and the kind of friendship that transcends generations. And it's got one of those lovely beach covers on it. So it's definitely the time of year when we're starting to see beaches on the covers of books that are intended as beach reads. And this one has a tote bag with sunglasses and a little red crab. Everything that you need to take on your beach vacation. And uh, moving on down the list, just one more step. At number four, The Crooked Staircase by Dean Kuntz, the third book in the Jane Hawk series. Uh, She's a rogue FBI agent, and uh, her husband has died in a murder-suicide, one of many that are uh, escalating across the country. And so she's trying to figure out what's going on with that. We don't have a review of this title, but it sounds like one that's going to appeal to fans of the series at number six, Warlight by Michael Andate. And this is, uh, we gave it a starred review, a historical novel uh, in which the narrator looks back at the year 1945, when he was 14 and his parents left him and his older sister in the care of two men who may have been criminals. And uh, when they find out that their mother lied to them about why she left, uh, it upends His life. And we say that the central irony is Nathaniel's eventual realization that his mother's heroic acts of patriotism during and after the war left lasting repercussions that fractured their family. And the book is mesmerizing from the first sentence, rife with poignant insights and satisfying subplots. So uh, that's at number six. And finally, down at number 20, The Other Lady Vanishes by Amanda Quick. This is the second book in her Burning Cove series. Our review says that fans of the first book, The Girl Who Knew Too Much, will find that this complicated but entertaining follow-up set in Hollywood's golden age hits the spot and it's centered on a tea shop in Burning Cove, California which attracts movie stars and the tourists who want to gape at them and in this case one of the tea shop staff Adelaide Blake makes special tea blends that always bring back return customers such as a handsome widower who is visiting the seaside community to soothe his exhausted nerves and also a psychic to the stars Uh, This romantic thriller requires careful tracking of numerous characters, but our reviewer says the effort pays off. Mm. And that's what we've got on the hardcover fiction list.
0: All right. So on uh, nonfiction, we have at number two, The Soul of America, The Battle for Our Better Angels by John Meacham. Meacham is a uh, historian professor at Vanderbilt University. Uh, His previous book was Thomas Jefferson, The Art of Power. And in this book, we say America's century-long struggle about race, gender, and immigration are viewed through the lens of presidential calculation and conviction in the sonorous but shallow study. He takes it back from Ulysses S. Grant's vigorous action to protect freedmen from the uh, KKK through uh, reconstruction to uh, Lyndon Johnson. Johnson's moral and political dynamism in the sixties. Uh, we say, unfortunately, Meacham's focus on presidents as moral exemplars and embodiments of America's political soul feels more like mysticism uh, than cogent analysis. And at number four, uh, this is a um, uh, personal thrill for me uh, Barracoon, uh, the story of the last black cargo by Zora Neale Hurston, edited by Deborah G. Plant. This comes out from I'm a huge fan of Zora Neale Hurston's. I've read all of her uh, fiction. Uh, she comes from Eatonville, which is a town about an hour and a half north of where I grew up in Florida, mm-hmm. the first town to have a black mayor uh, in the United States. And this is from a previously published manuscript. Is uh, uh, is this is, We say it's a remarkable account of the life of Casola, also known as Cujo Lewis, the last survivor of the last American slave ship. We gave this review, starred. And this is something that Zora Neale Hurston had worked on uh, when she was working as an anthropologist in 1927, before before their eyes were watching God, she traveled to Plateau, Alabama to interview uh, Kosola, who is then 86 years old. We say that while Hurston acknowledges that her account uh, quote-unquote makes no attempt to be a scientific document, but on the whole is rather accurate, Casola's story, in the vernacular of his own words, is an invaluable addition to American social, cultural, and political history. And what's also thrilling is that this is sold about 22,000 right out the gate, which is something you just don't Think about it. It's just great. So I'm excited about this.
2: I've already seen someone watch uh, someone reading it on the subway. No kidding. Which I was very, I was like, I didn't even know that was out yet. That but is great. Yeah, oh, I no, love
0: that. I love that. Very, very interested in this. Especially when you don't see as many people reading as you used to. Yeah, wow. that's nice. So at number 13, the uh, Autoimmune Solution Cookbook. Over 150 delicious recipes to prevent and reverse the full spectrum of inflammatory symptoms and diseases uh, by uh, Amy Myers. And then at number 14, Note to Self, Inspiring Words from Inspiring People by Gail King. This is from uh, letters from the popular CBS This Morning segment, Note to Self, in which uh, 21st century luminaries pen advice and encouragement to the young people they once were. So that's a collection there. And then uh, at number 19, uh, Born to Build, Jim Clifton. Uh, the subtitle is How to Build a Thriving Startup, a Winning Team, New Customers, and Your Best Life Imaginable. And well, that's at number 19. And I want to say that's all we got.
2: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella. And this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
2: Next up, Marco Shiro tells us why anger is a gift. We'll be right back. My name is Lauren Hilgers. I'm the author of Patriot Number 1, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly
0: Radio. I'm Mark Rotella.
2: And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City.
0: Today, we've got Mark Oshiro on the line. His new book is Anger is a Gift. Hello, Mark. So glad you could join us. Hello, friend. So glad to be here. It's
2: really great to have you here. So this is your first young adult novel. and um, First novel, period. Your first novel ever. Yeah. Ever. Um so set the stage for us this this community um dealing with white supremacy police mm-hmm. violence give us give us the background
1: Um I mean so uh, the the general pitch I've been giving people about what the book is um you know what the book covers it is is And it's been this weird thing because I didn't intend it for it it to be a commentary on this, but it's about a bunch of kids who stage a walkout when things go wrong at their school and their kids are getting injured. And in the last few months, then that actually became a weird reality. Um, And so, it's this book that's having a conversation with with the sort of legacy of police violence and the legacy of activism in high school. Um, It's based partially on my own experiences. I went to a school with a resource officer uh, which was a police officer who was stationed there all the time. And it wasn't until I got to college that I found out that that's not actually normal across the U.S. It's only in certain places where that really is a very common thing. And so this has been an idea that's been brewing in my head, you know, since I was probably like 19, 20 years old. But uh the actual inspiration for the book, and this is a bit of a, a curveball here, is an episode of Buffy the Vampire Slayer.
2: <laughs> so tell okay, us, okay, tell us about that. Yeah, is that?
1: there is an episode in the sixth season called Seeing Red. That is, um, And if you're not familiar with Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I won't spoil it, but a very upsetting thing happens um, uh, to a character. And I was very shocked by the sort of tone of the response to the review that I posted on my Mark Watches website of this specific episode. Because there were so many people who were arguing that this character death was a good thing. That this character not being there anymore was now a sign of equality and it just seemed, it was such a bizarre idea to me. Um And I remember that evening after, you know, just waiting through so many upsetting comments, I, I sat down and I wrote this scene about this kid trying to defend the fact that his father should not have died to a bunch of people. And it was just one of those things like, this is how I'm going to deal with it. Um, That scene, it, the, despite that some of the details are different, is still in the book to this day. Um And it was me sort of working out this idea of who do we decide in society? Is it... Is it Okay, for them to die, and that is a good thing. Um, and so that's, that is really where the basis of the book came from. It's been through many changes since then. It used to be a, the first book in a science fiction trilogy. It is not anymore. It is, uh, contemporary, a young adult contemporary. I did not plan on writing a contemporary book. I've, you know, I mean, as Rose knows, I've, I've been doing work in science fiction and fantasy for a very, very long time. I always assumed my first book would be a genre book, and it's, didn't end up being that way, um, but I'm very happy with where it ended up.
0: Well, let's jump right in. Let's talk about the main character, Moss Jeffries, who is gay, Mm African-American, and a 16-year-old, I believe, high school
1: student. Yep. Yeah. And um, there's a lot of him that's autobiographical. I think a lot of authors with their first book borrow from their own lives. Um, And in my case, it was I really wanted to talk about um, a few issues. One, being in high school and having you know PTSD and dealing with anxiety issues it was something that i never saw in books growing up um and i had no real resource aside from one really good counselor who i could talk to about these sort of things so a lot of the book is imagining a, a world where that wasn't necessarily an issue where what if this kid could talk to his mom he could he had a best friend who he could talk to about these issues there were people at school he could talk to about it Um, I think a lot of the book is almost like a power fantasy for me, where I imagined a world where I didn't necessarily have to come out, where I could have dated when I was in high school. Um, And so, in Moss, there's a lot of that sort of wish fulfillment, I guess. Um, and it's been interesting reading the response too, because so many people are like, wow, this feels like such a modern book and it's so cool that this is, you know, and it's so believable because I know this is what my relationship with my parents was like. And so they're like, you know, how did you capture that? Is that what your parents were like? And is this what your school was like? And I was like, no, it's actually a response <laughs> to that. So, you know, I, I think in the end i just really wanted to write a, a main character who is gay and just very emotional all of his emotions are right on the surface everyone always knows what he's feeling he does he's not very good at hiding them um aka me and i really <laughs> liked writing this like soft <laughs> emotional boy Um, and, and really digging into why he's like that and how he interacts with the world.
0: So for, uh, for, uh, uh, Joss, what are his, the, the sources of his anxiety and his PTSD?
1: Yeah. So the, the sort of backstory that's seated in the first couple chapters is that six years prior to the beginning of this uh, story, Moss Jeffrey's father was uh, murdered in front of him by the police. Um, it was a mistaken A case of mistaken identity. The police were in the wrong place. His father came out of a market that is actually a few doors down from where he still lives. And uh, his father had headphones in, he didn't hear the order to put his hands up, and he was shot. Um, And so, it's not just an examination of grief, because losing someone is a very difficult thing. I lost my father in 2006. Um, and so, there's there's elements of that in there, of when someone who's been in your life for so long is suddenly not there, what are the things that you do to cope with it? Um, but the other part of it is that, you know, growing up um, in Southern California, um, you know, being openly gay, being Latino, uh, I had a lot of very difficult interactions with the police. So much so that I'm, you know, I I have this, my anxiety manifests in the same way, which is that if I see the, you know, the lights of a cop car, if I see, even here in New York, if I'm getting on the subway and cops get on the same car as me, I get super nervous because it's this fear of, oh my God, is it going to happen again? Are they going to harass me again? Am I going to get hurt? Um, and so, a lot of that thread throughout the book is very, very autobiographical. Um, and And... I'll admit, you know, it's it's hard being honest about that because when you talk about mental illness, I think there's a vulnerability in admitting how that manifests and how your brain can sort of work against you. Hmm. Even if you're totally aware of like, I'm a good person, the people in my life love me. There's a thing when you have anxiety, when you have depression, where your brain just seems wired to constantly disagree with reality around you. Um, and so you have this kid who's been dealt this very serious trauma he lives in a community where he's constantly reminded by it um and then on top of that you know he he there's there's a sense that and i know the word isn't always the best to use but he just wants a normal life because mm. he sees the life for example his best friend esperanza has and there are moments where he's like, I wish it was that easy for me, where I didn't have to think about these things, I didn't have to worry about it. That's not to say that like his life is abnormal, but it's the sense of like, here are these things that I'm struggling with, and some of my, a lot of my friends are struggling with too, and I wish it were just a little bit easier. Um, and so, the, you know, that's a <laughs> that's a heavy subject to write about, but I really wanted to be honest about that and really talk about what it's like to be, you know, in a high school setting, to be a teenager and dealing with those sort of issues.
2: Give us a sense of what it's like for his classmates as well, for this whole community. I mean, this is Oakland, yeah. California, which is uh, you know, anyone who's seen Fruitvale Station or yeah. read the news knows that there's this very tense relationship there between right. police and communities of color. So can right. you kind of fill that in for us.
1: So, and it, and it's interesting you bring that up because I did a school, my very first school visit, and I would say the majority of the students understood this sort of political history without none of them had ever been to Oakland, but they just knew because they recognized it in their own communities. And a lot of the teachers did not, they were very mm. like, Oh, this, I've never seen a school like this before, or have school have these sort of problems while their own students are sitting there like, Oh, we know what all of this is. Um, and so, you know, setting it in, in West Oakland was very, very deliberate. I lived in Oakland for five years. Um, part of it is, is you have this legacy of student activism there. You have a legacy of, uh, you know, the Black Panthers, um, you know, uh, basically uh, having such a huge part in the community that you can still feel their effect today. Um, and so, part of what I wanted to do was show what is the normal for these kids. They're used to a school with a sort of crumbling infrastructure. They don't have funding for all of their school books. So, there are scenes where they, they get photocopied like bound photocopy versions of books, which is something I had to deal with when I was a kid. They have, wow. there's a, a scene where a kid, you know, this is something we didn't have, but it, it's something that I heard from one of my friends who teaches out of a school in Oakland, which was that she had one of her students email them a a pirated copy of a book because they could not have, they did not have enough money to buy them for every student for the year for the, in the, one of their English classes, you know? And so there's a scene where that happens and, and it's not so much that it's a... Comp- I think what I was trying to do is show that this is what these kids are used to. Um, and while they struggle with that and they have problems with it, it's almost so normal for them that it's, it's like background noise. Like this is just sort of what we're dealing with. So when things start to ramp up at the school and the the school hires you know, the Oakland Police Department to basically run security at their school, these students are like, okay, now our normal is becoming abnormal, and I think we need to do something. So, a lot of the beginning of the book is setting up this idea of here's what these kids are used to, what's the breaking point? What happens when, and it's not just the kids, actually, a lot of the teachers are very much on their side too. What is that point where they say enough is enough? I think we need to do something to let the people in charge know this, you've gone too far.
2: You mentioned the teachers being on their side as yeah. well. Uh, I think that's the thing that we don't see a lot in books set in high schools usually mm-hmm. it's kids versus grown ups right and the kids are the smart ones, and the grown ups are like the home alone antagonists. yeah exactly so um, how did you how did you decide to set it up that way
1: um, it, 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 actually, in a lot of the earlier drafts, the most of the adults were not actually allies with the kids, mm-hmm. and I think that it, especially in young adult fiction, it was a very easy thing to write. I think it made a lot of sense. Um, but one of the bits of feedback I got in a lot of the early drafts was that what had never changed was Moss's relationship with his mother, Wanda. They have an, in, like, an intensely close relationship, born of the fact that her husband died as well. And so they sort of turn to each other to comfort each other. So they're both super honest with one another. They're incredibly supportive. And it was immensely rewarding to write this relationship where this kid's best friend, or at least one of them, is his mom. Um, and so I got a lot of feedback that was like, I would love to see what other adults in this universe would look like if you didn't assume they would all be against the kids. Um, And it was just, you know, it was a lot of great editing, a lot of great feedback is someone just opening a door. They're not actually telling you what to do with your story. They're just like, well, what if this? And it was this door open. And then I saw the light on the other side and was like, oh. And I thought back to my own experience in high school. I had some incredible teachers who are super helpful when I was dealing with some really heavy stuff in high school who helped with from anything from like helping me with meals during the day to actually like taking me in um, when I actually got kicked out of my house when I was 16 years old. Um, And I think one of the great transformative experiences for a lot of kids, you know, and not just in America, around the world is when you have those sort of figures in your life who understand what it was like to be a teenager and to struggle with that and actually help help you with that. So, for example, their English teacher, Mrs. Torrance, is very instrumental in fostering... There's a lot of these scenes where she fosters discussion. When something happens, instead of her just being like, okay, we're going to continue with the school day, she's like, no, we're going to take half an hour and we're all going to talk about this. Why are you upset? Why did this new policy change make you so angry? What do you want to do with it? And it was it was... Something that I wanted to write, um, not just because I think it made the story better, but in a lot of ways, I feel like the book could be sort of a handbook in that sense of like, how can you be an ally to teenagers? How can you show, you know, for the adults who do read it, how can you show that you are interested in the things um, that they care about and how do you validate them? How do you validate the things that teenagers are feeling? So, that's what a lot of where that shift sort of happened. Um, so, there, there tends to be more adults who are allies than antagonists in the book.
0: So where does the, uh, the, the element, this culture of white supremacy, uh, where is this? Is this within the school or is this outside the community where the school is?
1: Both. I, I, both. Um, you know, in the construction of the book, that is one of the reasons why it was set in West Oakland. I wanted it to be in a school, in a major urban environment where if you were – so there's a, a huge threat throughout the book of, of Oakland versus Piedmont. Um, and this is a very real thing because I lived in Oakland and Piedmont is the area just sort of like Northeast of Oakland where all the people who lie and say they live in Oakland, that's where they live. Um, and the thing is, <laughs> it's a much more affluent neighborhood. They tend to, there tend to be houses versus apartments. You're not really going to get like, you know, these 20 story buildings with a bunch of apartments in them. Um, and so you, they get the street cred of saying they live in Oakland, but really they live in Piedmont and we all know that you live in Piedmont. So they're very close to each other though. This is not something where they're separate separated by 20 miles, where one of the places I lived in Oakland, it was maybe a five-minute walk to Piedmont. Um, And so, you have this contrast there, which is that here is a community and because of property taxes, because of the funding that they get from the state, their schools are just better. And so, um, that is why Moss's best friend Esperanza, she goes to this other school. And so, you have one of the ways that white supremacy um, manifests in the book is that her school, and she's not white. She's Latina. She's uh, a transracial adoptee. Her parents are white. Um, but she goes to a school where her school has Wi-Fi. They have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, catered lunches every single day. These are things... For her, that's her normal. And so, one of the struggles in the book is how she just can't quite understand why things are so difficult in masa school. And she can't quite understand why these horrible things that are happening should be viewed as horrible things. She kind of like... Uh, what's the word I'm thinking of? She kind of... Um, defaults to respectability. What is the respectable thing to do? What's, you know, we should always give everyone a chance to talk and we need to listen to the other people. And Moss becomes increasingly frustrated with that because they've been on the receiving end of so much negative treatment from the school, from the police, from other people in their community that they're like, we're tired of listening. Someone needs to listen to us. Um, I mean, at the same time, I, I like—I would like to think that I didn't write the book as like a, you know, like after-school special about racism. There's not too much like very direct talk about it. It's more like the backdrop, if that makes sense. Um, you know, none of the, very few of the characters actually say racist thing. It's more about what are their actions, what do they believe, who do they support. Um, so you know, it's 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 like it's the backdrop, this, the 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 behind-the-scenes sort of setting to the book instead.
2: We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away.
1: Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on
3: iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know.
2: I'm Rose Fox.
0: And I'm Mark Rotella.
2: Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio.
0: Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com.
2: Welcome back. We're talking with Mark Oshiro, author of "Anger Is a Gift." So the school brings in the police to police the halls, mm-hmm. and how does the how do the students react to that?
1: So I, I really see that as like the pivot point, or the first major one in the book, which is that this is a school that's always had a resource officer. Uh, his name's Frank Hall. Uh, he's known for his temper. He's known for swearing at students. He's known for generally not being a great person, yet he always tries to think he's friendly with the students. Mm. So he has this very weird antagonistic relationship because he wants the students to accept him, but he seems to lash out because no one sees him as a part of the community, you know? And so it's after um the school starts instituting random locker searches and frank hall mistakes a person's um ep- epilepsy medication for drugs that that's really the first moment that things start escalating in this in this really stressful direction so when it's decided there's both a there's sort of a large like macro look of what's the problem with this and then a very personal one um you know it's hard going to school when you're viewed as like a criminal just as a default You know, and that was one of the weirdest things about going to the high school that I did, which is that I knew so many kids who were disciplined by a police officer and thrown into like the juvenile system for offenses that at other school would be like, you go to detention. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, and as we were talking earlier, like that's just the normal baseline or whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, And so for these kids, you know, that's sort of what they're used to as well. But on a personal level, it's particularly difficult for Moss to deal with because these, the same organization never even apologized to him and his mother for killing mm-hmm. the wrong person. It was always his father's fault for not putting his hands up. And so for him, it's, 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 it's a very personal sign that this is wrong, that he can't trust these people. He can't assume that they're just going to be there in the background and not interacting. He assumes the worst because the worst has always sort of been his life. So at the same time, like, When you're 16 years old, you don't want to be the head of an activist group, like you know. And I did a lot of activist work, but at the same time, you get to a you get to a point where you're like, I just want to go to prom. I just want to be able to, to date someone cute. I just want to do all of these things that seem to be the normal teenage experience. And so there's this you know inner very personal conflict with Moss about how involved he wants to be. He was sort of made the figurehead when his father died, and he just wants to live his life and not be forced to deal with this. So when it happens, he's also like, man, do I have to get involved? Do I have to be the person who's in charge of this? I don't feel like I should. I just want to be a normal teenager. And then as events happen, things move in a very interesting direction. And Moss has to deal with what anger, this anger that he constantly feels. Mm. Um, and so that's really where the, what the title gets into and what his journey is, is, well, I'm angry at all of this stuff, but what do I do with it?
0: So, I also want to talk about another character, Javier. Uh, Javier. uh, He's a comic book
1: (laughs) artist. Yeah, big comic book geek. Um, God, he was so much fun to write. Um, I, I didn't want the book to also just be like, here is this dire situation all the time. And that's where this sort of budding romance came in. Um, and I had mentioned earlier that I also didn't necessarily want to have like a coming out narrative in the book. I just wanted Moss and his mom to just be cool with it. She's just like, this is just who you are. Um, and so threaded throughout this is, is is you know, these two storylines of Moss dealing with this very upsetting, stressful thing in his school, but then also reali- like dating for the first time. And mm-hmm. what does that look like now? What does that look like in the days of Snapchat and Instagram? And what does it mean when he has his mom's, you know, express permission to date a boy. And um, I actually think one of my favorite things about writing that was actually writing Javier's mom and Moss's mom. And and what is it, what is it like for, two, you know, these two moms to raise their kids? But you, it's, you're not given a handbook like, you have a gay son, here's how you deal with it. So, there's a lot of this like very cute, adorable awkwardness about, well, we don't really know what we're doing. But we're going to try, which usually means that all they do is talk about Moss and Javier while they're still in the room. Um, <laughs> so there's a lot of fun stuff in writing that. But I, I think for me, it added some much needed levity so that it wasn't the serious thing all the time. And, you know, I didn't have books with gay teens in them growing up at all. It wasn't until I got to college that I found out that there was. All of this, you know, young adult fiction being published and maybe not necessarily being the most popular of the books in YA, but there was, there were actually gay characters in, um, you know, young adult novels. And so this is sort of my like book that I wish I had when I was a teenager. Cause if I had read that, I would have felt so validated to know like it's okay to feel these ways about your body and it's okay to second guess yourself when you're dating someone for the first time. And, you know, and so a lot of that stuff was, um, it was really rewarding to write. I really enjoyed it.
2: You talk very analytically about your work. And, I do. I uh, can't help it. <laughs> well, so, so tell us a little bit about what it's like being a, a cultural critic, if that's yeah. the right term, and then ending up on the other side of the fence with having written the well, book.
1: And like you said, I do the Mark Reads and Mark Watches thing with my own work right um, like I'm, which, I'm
2: hearing you do it it's right now
1: so, I can't turn it off <laughs> right. it's so bad that like my friends when we go to the movie theaters they'll be like you cannot talk during this mark because I'm so used <laughs> to like you know filming my videos when I'm watching TV or reading things and const- you know commenting in real time same thing when I did the audiobook for anger is a gift I, it was so hard to not stop and then comment on the thing that I just read so um, you I, wanted to do like the director's soundtrack yeah. thing to the audio I, I feel <laughs> like someone would be interested in that, but I, I, I think what it is is, I. It's interesting to come from one side to the other. I've spent almost a decade now, being you know doing critical analysis of books and, and television. I also don't think I could have written a book until I did that. Right. I've tried for so many years, but in you know I didn't. I'm a college dropout. I never finished college. I think doing Mark Reads and Mark Watches was my chance to basically. Through reading books, mostly YA, mostly science fiction and fantasy, you know, watching all these television shows, that was my college. That was this education that I didn't get to have. Um and I don't think that I would have been as savvy about the tropes that appear in fiction, which ones people tend to like, which ones people tend to see as harmful if I hadn't spent so long picking apart books and finding out what it is about them that makes them tick, what makes you excited as a reader or whatnot. So it's, you know, I think the other part of it that's weird is, you know, so for listeners who are not familiar, I actually do not allow spoilers. To be directed my way about anything that i read or watch i'm not allowed to research them i have to go into them completely ignorant so my whole life for the last decade has been this like spoiler free shield around my body (laughs) i just have this bubble (laughs) and i've gotten so good at just you know being able to mute terms on twitter and and on tumblr and my friends know to not talk about me about things unless i've said i've seen something or whatnot and now i have all the spoilers because all you know like especially we Tortine did this sample like the first seven chapters and I had people messaging me. Well, what happens next? What about these characters? Oh, I love this character. What's going on with them? And I'm just sitting there and I'm like, I have all the power. This is amazing. Now I get it. Like, but it's, <laughs> so it's, it's very strange to be on the other side of it. But to be honest, I, w- I wouldn't wish it had gone any other way. I'm glad it went this direction.
2: And what's fun for you now that you've got this book almost out in the world? You've mentioned doing school visits. You're doing the Bronx Book Festival this this weekend, Um, which
1: is very exciting. It's all pretty fun. It's flattering. It's very surreal. I'll admit it's felt like a fever dream until about a week or two ago that, you know, I'd wanted to publish a book since I was a kid, like five or six years old. I used to write these terrible ripoffs of Twilight Zone episodes, but repackage them like Goosebumps books. But all my, you know, all the kids at school didn't know that I was just rewriting Twilight Zone episodes. So they thought I was this little genius. And I would draw these, I mean, horribly drawn things on like construction paper and I would staple them together and we would pass them around. So, like, this is like, you know, if fate exists, that my fate was always to be a writer. But it just took much longer than I thought it would um, to get to this point. And so now that it's happening, it's been really neat to see people respond to it and, you know, tweet reviews at me and tell me how much they appreciated. You know, this non binary character being in the book or or appreciate having a mom who's such a positive figure. Um, I will say, just because it's fresh on my memory, the coolest single thing that has happened is someone went and found a lush bath bomb that matched the colors on the cover so that they could take a bath that was color coded with the book while they read it. Wow. Uh, and I can't remember their username or I would credit them right wow. now, but I retweeted them. It <laughs> is oh my God. the coolest That's thing right. I've ever seen. And it made me so happy because I think about how many weird little things that I've done when I'm like really into a record and I'll like color code my outfit or like, I'm going to go see this band and I'm going to dress up like this. And that's like the first big thing that someone has done. That's like transforming this thing that I created into a different piece. And it's, it was, it was, yeah, I cried. Not gonna (laughs) lie. I did. It was pretty cool.
0: So, um, tell us about the Mark Does Stuff website. Uh, just a little bit. Yeah. Um, it sounds like a lot of your energy feeds into both your, your website
1: and, and the writing of the book. Yeah. You're just your life. It's my whole life. I, I mean, it's also something that could not have existed 15 years ago. If you told me 15 years ago, you're going to read books and watch TV for a living and film yourself while doing it, I'd been like, that doesn't make any sense. How? Who's going to watch that? But we have this culture... Where, you know, being immediate and being honest is like a part of our lives now. And we follow people on social media because we get these sort of very personal, intimate looks into their lives. So, you know, for the past, I mean, this this August will be nine years, I have been running these two websites where I unspoiled read and watch things and cry a lot on camera and yell at people for these horrible plot twists. And it's been the most fun I mean, I can't, it's such a cool, you know, I'm doing air quotes now. It's a cool job to have. And it's not something that I thought I'd be able to make a living off of. And I certainly didn't think it would lead me to meeting my agent or meeting my editor or getting a publishing deal. All of that stuff has sort of come through this very weird labyrinthine path. Um, and I love it. I mean, it's just, I like responding to things. And I know it's it's like a very general statement, but I do, I really love responding to people's art and their creativity. And that's pretty much what I get to do for a living.
0: And speaking about
1: responding to things, you
0: have a a kind of a, a unique lifelong goal i do and what
1: do you want to talk about that i do and i fulfilled part of it on the way here which is that i want to pet every single dog in the world uh i grew up with lots of dogs like and it's really that like from a very young age there were like five or six dogs in my house at any given time so i just had this thing where just all dogs i love them all i don't care how weird they look like if they look like (laughs) ewoks who have ran into a wall i love those dogs um, I mean, I tend to love bigger dogs because we had a lot of big dogs growing up, but I pet three dogs on the way to this podcast recording. Three of them. It was pretty great. <laughs> I'm working on it. I actually, someone just tagged me. There is a new Twitter account of this very young person who is basically going to rate every dog that they pet. And it's just a chronicle of here's this dog I met. I pet them. They were soft, you know, five stars. And I'm just <laughs> like, you, you're you going to make it in life, <laughs> You're going to make it.
2: So you have this very unconventional career path, if we can even
1: yeah, very call, unconventional.
2: Call it that. And I know that as you're going around touring with this book and mm-hmm. talking to young people about this book, inevitably someone's going to say, "How can I be a writer like you?" So um, to prepare you for that, oh boy, what are you what are you going to say? Uh,
1: actually, I have an answer ready for that, which is to not stop. Um, I think one of the reasons. You know, I have the work ethic that I do. And one of the reasons I've been able to be as productive as I am is that, you know, since probably about 2008, 2007, um, I write almost every single day. Mm. Whether it's 250, 500 words, whether it's nonfiction to now where I'm, you know, doing fiction and nonfiction sometimes in the same day. Um, I went th- I went a long period away, I didn't write at all. Uh, and it was after I dropped out of college is I got really burned out. And I, I didn't, I, I convinced myself that this was not my path, that I had mistakenly pursued the wrong career. And so for a chunk of about three or four years, I don't think I wrote a word aside from like emails or things on the internet. I just, it just wasn't a part of my life. And the thing with like writing every day for me is that, you know, I've gotten used to the act of finishing the thing that I started. And so when I finally started this book in 2012, um, it was, it wasn't inconceivable that I would finish it someday, you know, and it was months, months and almost a year before I finished that first mm-hmm. draft. But since then, you know, I I revised it multiple times. It changed genre. And before the book even sold, I just moved on to the next thing. And it was like, I'm not going to wait around for this to be successful for me to continue to be creative. So, my first book has not even come out. I'm currently massively editing this or doing a huge rewrite on the second one for Tortine. And I'm already working on books like three through six, like at this wow. point. And 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 this is what I t- what I've been telling people is: don't wait for success. Just keep writing and keep creating as long as you have ideas. And I, you know, the editing that I did on my first book has forced me to rewrite things in my second one to become a better writer. And I'm noticing, you know, once I've learned through the editing process, oh, maybe you shouldn't use seven hundred adverbs. Now I like writing the second one. I'm like, oh. You, there's a better word for that. There's a better way to write this sentence. And I know as I work on, you know, these books afterward, I'm, I'm growing. I'm taking in new knowledge. Um, and so my big thing is to just keep doing it, even if it's bad at first, cause it's, oh, we're all, ter- all our first drafts are terrible. Just keep doing the act of creating and, and create new things. And I've, I found that to be the most fulfilling thing about being a writer is, you know, I'm 34. And I have a, a, a note in my, the notes app on my phone. I just have a list of story ideas and I'm up to like between 40 and 50 at this point. And it's because I don't, I, you know, I, I note them down. I don't work on all 40 and 50 at the same time, right. but I, it's just really nice to know that I haven't run out of ideas and that there's so many things I want to create and so many different kinds of stories that I want to tell. Um, so yeah, just don't stop. Just keep doing it.
2: We've been talking with Mark Oshiro. You can find his book, Anger is a Gift, in stores right now. Mark, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This is a delight. I'm Mark Rotella.
2: And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio.
0: Next up, PW News Director Rachel Deal talks about New York Rights Fair, so stay tuned.
1: Hello, this is Elaine Weiss. I'm the author of The Woman's Hour, The Great Fight to Win the Vote. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
2: I'm Rose Fox
0: And I'm Mark Rotella And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Direct from the PW offices in New York City
2: Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors Today PW News Director Rachel Deal is here to tell us all about the New York Rights Fair Hi Rachel Hi, thanks for having me It's always very nice to have you on the show It's been a while It has And uh, now that you've you've managed to finally fail to evade our hook We've dragged (laughs) you onto the show Tell us a little bit about New York Rights Fair And what the big deal is
3: We're really excited about it. It's an inaugural event here in New York City that will be taking place May 30th, uh, May 31st, and June 1st. And uh, it's something we've worked on in conjunction with the Bologna Book Fair and the combined book exhibit. And the thinking behind it um, was really driven by the folks at Bologna. In that, you know, they sensed there was an opportunity in New York, um, just because, you know, for years Book Expo had been a place that um, people working in the publishing industry internationally would come to Book Expo and, you know, they would do a fair bit of, um, you know, rights business and, you know, they would... Basically plan what some you know might do as an annual trip, plan it around book expo um but you know I think in maybe the last ten years or so that has that tradition has fallen off a bit um you know, and I think generally um people in the industry you know look at sort of the three big international fairs um to do sort of foreign rights work being um the London Book Fair, the Frankfurt Book Fair, and you know and the Bologna Book Fair um so you know they sensed an opportunity to really sort of bring uh the international contingency in the industry back to New York and really to sort of try to um i think reemphasize New York as a place where you know, the industry should be getting together once a year to do rights business as well, in addition to those three European fairs. So that was really the thinking behind it.
0: Well, I remember the years ago, maybe decades of going to the atrium at BEA at the Javits Center and having all the agents there. But over the years, they just started uh, it, that space got started getting smaller and smaller. And, um, and right, we talked about well, Bologna is mostly rights for kids, but Frankfurt and London. And but but then to have all the publishers at least the US publishers here and you know a, a reason a, a big reason for foreign publishers to come here um w- was was pretty exciting
3: exactly for- and i you know i think um the thinking has always been that new york is certainly the center of uh the us publishing industry so it does make sense to have um a thriving you know rights, uh, focused event in New York. Um, you know, certainly that's the case with London, you know, in the, you know, that's the center of the UK publishing industry. Um, so, so yeah, that, I, that was the driving force behind, um, behind the fair. And then, you know, I've been working on, uh, the programming and that was sort of insofar as it was a, a rights focused fair, you know, the, um, the focus of the programming has really been about, uh, rights mm-hmm. and, you know i i'd say that term i i whenever i say it it sounds a little dull to me um just because i think it doesn't get across um you know how important um rights are to to the industry um you know in terms of they're such a driver of um i think you know of money for publishers and and for authors really and i mean at the end of the day look a- across i think all creative industries you know what what we refer to as intellectual property is so incredibly important. It's, you know, it's the lifeblood of all these industries. And and I know sometimes it gets kind of, um, I don't want to say bogged down, but, you know, you can get really technical about, um, you know, the lega- legality of stuff around IP. And, it, you know, in, in general, it doesn't sound like a term. Um, it sounds like something you'd be talking about in a courtroom, you know, not in um, some of these sort of... Um, creative businesses, but they're incredibly important to, to creators and, you know, to the, the businesses that, um, that produce, um, content and, you know, and entertainment. So that is, um, that was what was in mind when we put together the, the programming for the show.
0: The dates are the three dates of BEA. Where is it? And I want to hear some of this programming that you've put together.
3: So, yeah, it's uh, taking place during BEA. Again, the dates are May 30th, 31st, and June 1st. Um, and it is at the Metropolitan Pavilion, which is in the heart of Chelsea. It's so a great space. Yeah, it is a great space. Um, and... Basically, the program has sort of three different tracks, if you will. Um, we have something called the global landscape, which is what we're focusing on the first day of the show on the 30th. Um, the second day, the 31st, uh, we have page to screen where we're going to be doing some panels, really, um, getting into, um, book to film stuff and kind of how rights are sold there and also, um, you know, some, some shifts in, in, um, the Hollywood landscape and how that's affecting, um, you know, authors and publishing. Um, and then the third day is called the pillars of rights. And that was really a day, uh, that was constructed with an eye towards sort of a more, um, introductory, uh, sort of view of how the rights business works. So with that in mind, um, it's kind of, it's ideal for people who don't necessarily work on the right side of the business who want to learn more about, um, some of the, sort of more important aspects of, um, what happens on that side of the business, you know, for junior people working in the industry who maybe are working in rights and want to learn a bit more about the particulars and dig in. Um, it's good for them too. So that's really, um, what we were focusing on there. And then there is also, um, another track called talking pictures, which, um, the folks at Bologna have largely overseen and, that's something that we're doing in conjunction with the Parsons School of Design, um, and that is sort of celebrating books that are sort of driven by imagery. Um, so, you know, picture books, um, sort of coffee table books, graphic novels, that kind
0: Cookbooks. of thing.
3: Cookbooks yeah. as well, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. <laughs> um, so, that, that is a, another part of the show as well. Tell us a couple of, just
0: pick out a couple of panels.
3: Uh, I'd love to. So on the first day of the global landscape, I think I didn't sort of detail what that is. But as you can probably assume, you know, we are um we have a number of people working sort of in the international publishing scene who are coming to the show. And so we're going to be talking a lot about um, foreign markets and sort of international books and selling books across borders. So, um, a couple panels that are of note, I'd say, um, to kick off the show, uh, we have a panel called, uh, International Blockbusters, uh, the success of four global bestsellers. And we're going to be looking at four books that, you know, have, Really, you know, I think when you think about international blockbusters, you always are sort of thinking about books that defy expectations just because it is so unusual to have a book that is not um published in the U.S. become a huge success in the U.S. And then when you have books that really do sort of succeed here and around the globe, um, you know, it's... These are outliers by and large. So um, so we have four people from different aspects of the industry, you know, some uh, foreign rights uh, people, some agents uh, talking about four different books and sort of how and why uh, they believe you know, they were all books they worked on, um, how and why they believe they managed to, you know, buck the trend. Right. Um so we have another panel that I think is going to be fairly interesting called uh the Scana- Scandinavian smell of success why and how their crime fiction has become a global export and you know I think the success of Scandinavian crime novels you know has been an ongoing trend that people have been talking about for a while in the industry but I mean if you want to talk about another situation where it really is the exception to the rule that you know that has been something that I think continues to surprise people um and I think at this point, it's not a trend anymore. You know, it's really become a sustained um, reality right. in that books from that region. And now it's spread, I think, beyond crime fiction to Scandinavian titles are, you know, gaining a foothold and sort of popular in a way that kind of no other, um, I think, international literature, you know, commercial-wise, you know, right. sales-wise, has really... Um, done so, especially, you know, in the U S. So we have a number of, um, of people who are experts in that area. You know, we have some literary agents from the region. Uh, we have some scouts talking about that as well. Um, and uh, just another call out on that day, we're going to, um, we have another panel, uh, that is going to be sort of a global spotlight on the Chinese market. Um, and that's called China Calling, What Consumers and One of the Biggest Global Markets Want. And so that is actually a panel where we have a couple of people who um with expertise in the book publishing world, but also some people from the uh from Hollywood. And they're really gonna be talking about um the market in China for entertainment at large and sort of what consumers want in terms of films, in terms of books, um, and how, you know, doing business there has shifted, I think, in the last, you know, five to 10 years or so. Another highlight of day one um, is a panel called The Audiobook Heard Around the World. How Publishing's Hottest Format Has Taken the Globe by Storm and What It Means for the Future. And this panel is curated by uh, the American Association of Authors Representatives, which is, of course, the AAR. Um, And Jennifer Welts, who uh, is on the board of the AAR and is a literary agent here in New York, uh, is going to be moderating that panel. And it's really interesting because I think, you know, the audiobook market has been one of the bright spots of the industry for a few years now. And it's something everybody's talking about, Um, you know, something everybody was talking about
0: yeah, it used to be something where it was a, just a, an afterthought, and now it's really part of the negotiating deals, I mean, in a big way.
3: It is, you know, and so I think um, because it's making so much money for publishers, it's really changing how people are thinking about audio rights. It's changing, um, you know, how uh, publishers are thinking about those rights and, you know, how much people want to hold on, want to try to hold on to them, do different right. things with them. You know, we've seen an explosion here in the U.S. in sort of audiobook originals, which speaks to this market, and... Something that everybody was talking about at the London Book Fair was really, you know, how the audiobook market, especially downloadable audio, is changing and evolving in Europe, where it it was really a dormant market, um, for a while. And so that is, um, what that panel and what Jennifer's gonna dig into, um, on sort of, on that talk. And, uh, you know, it's really, it's really a pressing issue and sort of very much of the moment. So I think that's one everybody should, should look out for. And then day two, uh, page to screen. One interesting panel that we have is called the Rise of the Streaming Giants: How Netflix, Amazon, and others are changing the rules of IP in Hollywood. Um, and we sort of we talked about this sort of earlier, just because I think everybody's watching what's happening um, with sort of streaming content and how this is totally changing um, not just the way we you know, watch TV and the way we watch movies, but it's, it's really changing. Um, it's changing Hollywood. And I, you know, I think a lot of people on the book side of things, you know, have been talking about how, um, you know, it's, it's a driving force for, you know, allowing for more right sales, you know, allowing, you know, that we're seeing more television, um, you know, being adapted and streamed. So, um, we're going to be talking to some scouts, you know, who work on that side, some co agents about, you know, just, just how much this shift is affecting, um, you know, book to, book to film deals, you know, what it means for authors, you know, is, is the perception actually correct that more stuff is being adapted or is that, you know, not necessarily, um, what's really happening, you know, doesn't mean, does that necessarily mean things have a better chance to be optioned or, or no. Right. So, um, uh, I think, you know, it raises a lot of interesting, uh, questions about, um, you know, how this is changing and, and what, if any opportunities it really means for authors, um, in terms of, you know, Hollywood, you know, chances for adaptations, that kind of thing. I guess just another sort of shout-out for the third day of the show, which is June 1st, um, and that's our Pillars of Rights. Um, I guess selfishly I have to do a shout-out to a panel I'm moderating uh, called Inside the Auction, which is how the biggest books get sold. Great. And I guess I'll tell you, you know, I cover the deals column uh, here at PW, and I'm constantly writing about auctions, and I'm always thinking as I write about auctions that – I actually don't know how they work, um, just insofar as I've never been in an auction myself. And, you know, I guess I, d- I do kind of... I find them fascinating, and I think they're sort of a sexy, exciting part of the industry. Yeah, they are. Right. You know, your book... It's every it's every author's dream, right? Yeah, book to have was...
0: like not just one or two, but three people at <laughs> least bidding on it.
3: Three, eight, eight, eight ten, <laughs> ten. Um, so you know, so I, th- this panel kind of grew out of all the questions I've actually had about cool. auctions, and there are many. Um, which is, I, you know, can you have a twenty-person auction? I I don't know. Maybe maybe <laughs> maybe you can. Um, maybe that happen all the time. But uh, so we have some uh, a couple agents, a couple editors talking about that, and hopefully. Hopefully lifting the veil, so to speak,
2: on on that. That sounds incredibly exciting. Thank you very much for coming in to give us a preview of it. And uh, hopefully a lot of people who are here for Book Expo will swing by the rights fair as well.
0: And I hope to catch part of it.
3: Yes, thanks. And just on that note, uh, in terms of swinging by, uh, we are cross-honoring tickets. So if you have a ticket for Book Expo, you can get
2: into the New York Rights Fair. And if you buy a New York Rights Fair ticket, then that will get you into Book Expo as well.
0: Good piece of knowledge right there. That's great.
3: Yeah. So come join us. Come check out the show. Um, And yeah, we hope to see you there. All right. Thank you so much,
2: Rachel. It's always great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. And now a final word from our sponsors.
0: Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book. I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albany, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a Publishing News Week in Review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com.
2: And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And
0: I'm Mark Rotella. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio.
2: Join us next week for another exciting author interview. And we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books. And the nuts and bolts of publishing.
0: In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at PublishersWeekly.com slash PWRadio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode stream live on AudiobookRadio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show.